to the Old Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Moody, and today we're focusing on Genesis 1 and 2. Um, There has been an immense amount of cedar pollen in the air in Austin, Texas over the last few days, and so my voice is thrashed. Uh, So please pardon the the hoarseness and the frogginess of my voice. Uh, I think that hopefully next week everything will uh, shape up a little better since the cedar seems to be receding. Um, it's one of those things I've learned in Austin that you don't think you have allergies until year three or year four of living here, and all of a sudden they flare up. So we're looking at Genesis uh, today, and the first week of reading was just two days. It was uh, January 1st and January 2nd. We read Genesis 1 and 2, and there's already just a ton to talk about in Genesis 1 and 2. So some of you may know that Genesis is the word for beginning, and it makes sense uh, that this is the beginning of Scripture. It, it uh, points to humankind's origins and how God created the world. Now, traditionally, Genesis has been thought to have been written by Moses. In fact, all of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is traditionally thought to have been written by Moses. But there are some complicating factors here. You see, Moses dies. Uh, his, his death is described uh, briefly in the Pentateuch toward the end of Deuteronomy. And there are uh, certain ways of speaking uh, in the first five books of the Bible that make it seem as if there are a variety of authors. Uh, This is known by scholars as the documentary hypothesis. Uh, Scholars uh, suggest that there are four primary authors uh, or or redactors, sometimes they'll use that word, editors, if you will, folks who compile uh, oral tradition and write it down. And they suggest that these four are the Yahwist, the Elohimist, the priestly writer, and the Deuteronomistic historian. Uh, They're abbreviated by letters J, that's I guess how Yahweh is is spelled in German, E for Elohim, P for priestly, and D for Deuteronomistic historian. Um, You don't need to know all of that, but if you're interested in in more information on that, I'm happy to to provide some links. But what what you'll notice is even in Genesis 1 and 2, there's an example of different uh, different highlights that the author uses. In Genesis 1, we have this magnificent, transcendent God that is creating all of the universe with just the sound of his voice. Uh, God is removed from the universe in Genesis 1, uh, doesn't come down into it and craft it himself. Instead, he speaks it into existence. And this points out just the power and transcendence of God. If you look at Genesis 2, starting in verse 4, we see a very different emphasis in the creation story. This is a God who is immediate, uh, as some would say imminent, a uh, God who's close to us, and, and, and a God who uh, really gets his hands dirty. Um, and so even in just these first two stories, we see a, a difference in what Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are highlighting. And uh, some of the uh, folks who buy into this documentary hypothesis that there are different authors that contributed to these first five books of the Bible, they'll suggest that Genesis 1 uh, was written by a priestly source, someone who cared very much about the separation and division of things, the proper division, and, and that God was not comprehensible and, and wasn't able to come down and be among human beings. Whereas Genesis 2 uh, and, and Genesis 3 as well is more of a Yahwistic source. The Yahwistic source, the J source, really emphasizes God's 
presence, uh, that, that God gets his hands dirty, uh, not only in creation, but also uh, it, it talks about, I believe in Genesis 3, God walking in the garden in the heat of the day. So be looking for that. Okay, so uh, let me say a few words about just an outline of Genesis before diving back into Genesis 1 and 2. So Genesis 1 through 11 is considered to be like prehistory. It's poetic in genre. This It, it gives a number of, of stories that um, are very true and are also very symbolic. Um, when I say very true, I'm not restricting myself to the meaning of true as in like a literal truth, but the story of, of Adam and Eve says something profound about human nature, that humans are, are made in God's image, that humans are not meant to be alone, and that humans can succumb to, to, to temptation. When we look at the story of the flood, we see the inevitability of evil, that God, in wiping evil off the face of the earth, is then confronted once more with uh, Ham, Noah's son, looking in on him naked, that there's evil that still exists in the hearts of human beings. And when we look at the Tower of Babel story, we see that humans desire to be like God, and this mirrors the Genesis 1, or Genesis 3, excuse me, story of the fall with with Eve and Adam desiring to be like God, knowing good and evil. So when I talk about Genesis 1 through 11 as prehistory and being poetic in genre, I don't mean for that to take away any of its emphasis or any of its drive, quite the opposite. Uh, it speaks eternal truths, and those eternal truths are not restricted to the scientific accuracy of Genesis 1 through 11. Now, when we get a little further in the book of Genesis, uh, beginning in chapter 12 and going through the end, that's more what, what I'd call patriarchal history. This is more historical and personal. Uh, we have the sense of um, real stories here as opposed to fables or as opposed to um, ideological stories. And an ideological story is a story that, that is true on many levels and describes why things are the way they are. Whenever any story ends with, you know, and that is why until this day, the people of Israel say yada, 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 you know that it's an ideological story. It's describing the origin of something. So uh, what we see here in just the outline of Genesis is that Genesis begins with the universal talking about all of human beings in Genesis 1 through 11 before descending into the particulars of a certain family chosen by God. And we see this pattern appear over and over again throughout the scriptures that there is um, an, an emphasis both on the universal and on the particular. And it's we move from the one to the other. What is true about all human beings is true specifically about the Israelites as God's chosen people. Again, we'll get into all this in future weeks, but I wanted to set the stage before we look specifically at Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, so getting into Genesis 1 and 2, we see the creation story. And we see it in two different ways. As I've said earlier, that, that you've got God being far removed from creation in chapter 1, speaking just by the power of his word. And, and this, this uh, takes on another form in John 1, where God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1 is a really great example of unifying God as transcendent, removed from human beings, and also God as imminent, Emmanuel, God with us. 
So God is far removed in chapter 1 using speech to form creation, and in Genesis 2, God acts as this master crafter, getting his hands dirty and shaping creation. There are a number of differences that we can also see in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, there's this beautiful symmetry of creation where in the first three days, the setting is created. And then the second three days, days four, five, and six, the setting that was created is populated. So in in day one, for example, the light and even the cosmos is created. Whereas in day four, the light and the cosmos are populated um, with sun and moon and stars. God set lights to govern the sky. And, and we see this mirror image in days two and five and in days three and six as well. In day two, the waters, seas, and sky are all pulled apart. You've got the, the, the sea and the sky separated, the waters um, put in their place. And, and it, it, to populate that, God makes the birds and the fish on day five. The birds, of course, to, to, to fly uh, in and around the sky and the fish to inhabit the seas. Whereas on day three, God creates the earth and vegetation. God, God separates the seas from the earth, the, the, makes the waters recede, and, and puts vegetation there. And this is the habitat of animals and humans. Uh, so, so God populates day three's creation on day six. Before finally in day seven, God observing a Sabbath day. Now, we haven't gotten the Ten Commandments at this point. That's not until Exodus 20. And so the Sabbath has not been given as a command for people to keep it holy. But there's this idea that human beings are not meant to work every single day of their lives, that they need time to rest and rejuvenate. And God models this for us because God, as good creator, knows the limits of our bodies. So God Sabbaths as a way of demonstrating to us that we too need to Sabbath. If God isn't going to work all seven days, well, shoot, there's no way we can. There's a number of highlights that we see in Genesis 1. We see human beings created in the image of God. In uh, in theology, we call this the imago dei. That's Latin for image of God. There's something divine. There's a spark of divinity within each human being that humankind was made good from the get-go. Some of you out there may be uh, faithful Calvinists, like I am. Um, Calvinism is is represented in the Presbyterian Church, and uh, it, it, it talks a lot about God's sovereignty and human brokenness. And uh, there are certain other things that Calvinism really uh, emphasizes. But this idea of depravity, that humans uh, are infected with sin, is absolutely true. And in creation, God didn't make human beings to be this way. Before human beings were infected with sin in the fall, which we'll get into next week, God made humankind good. And so there's this core of goodness that sin adheres to. Um, and and so as, as human beings were, in the words of Martin Luther, uh, simultaneously righteous, and sinful, simultaneously justified, and, and yet sinners. Um, and so this Imago Dei is a really important thing. It generates the idea of, of individual rights. We also see in Genesis 1 that there is, even from the beginning, an equality or an equity between male and female, that each has different roles to play, to be sure, but there's this equality in the eyes of God. Male and female, God created them. In the image of God, he created them, it says. Now, God also is not content with just 
making human beings and saying, hey, go get them, kids. Instead, God gives human beings a job, tend to the garden, and more than that, be fruitful and multiply. Um, make sure that you oversee all of creation. It's counting on you. So in comparison with Genesis 1, we see some similar themes, but also some different themes in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, instead of taking seven days to make all of creation, we're not told how long it takes God. Um, it may have all happened in one day in Genesis 2, but um, Genesis 2 has a, has a slightly different uh, uh, sequence involved as well. In verse 7, oh, and excuse me, when, when I'm talking about Genesis 2, I'm talking about verse 5 until the end of the chapter. Um, in, in Genesis 2, 7, we have the first human created, and then that human is awakened by God breathing into his lungs. In verse 8, we've got the garden that's, uh, that sprouts up that God creates. In verse 18, we have the animals that God creates and then gives to the human to try and find a suitable partner. Before in verse 22, God creating woman out of the rib of man. So already we see some differences here. We see some similarities and some distinctions. So human beings, instead of being the crown jewel of creation, as in Genesis 1, are the very first thing God creates. Uh, perhaps because God knows that God you know, wants a human being, wants to create something in God's image, wants to create something that is awakened with God's breath. Then the garden is made as a place for humans to tend, animals brought as, as potential partners for the human being, and here Adam names all the animals and looks for a suitable partner with all the animals before God caves and, and, and fashions Eve out of Adam's rib. God here is, is like a potter. Um, the, the, the song, you are the potter, I am the clay, mold me and make me, this is what I pray, um, may have had Genesis 2 in mind because God here gets his hands dirty. God here awakens human beings by blowing into their nostrils. This is a, a far different God from the God in Genesis 1 that is making things just with the power of a word. And yet, it's the same God, because we know God to be both far away, up in, in, in the sky or in, in heaven, in the universe, removed from us, and yet also within us, uh, in, with, with God's Spirit. And so Genesis 1 and 2, held in tension, really testify to the, the tension within who we understand God to be. Now, both Genesis 1 and 2 were originally, we think, oral tradition before they were written down. Uh, and scholars think that they were written down, you know, perhaps by Moses, but, but maybe by somebody later. That they were written down in order to, to serve as a written record for a community that mostly told things orally around a campfire. We see this in Deuteronomy 6, where it talks about how parents are supposed to uh, speak Torah to their children. And, um, and, and it's, it's very clear that this was an oral tradition. And yet there are certain things that, that uh, inhere to an oral tradition. There's certain things that, that get held on to. And we see in Genesis 1 and 2 something that gets held on to. This idea of God both as transcendent and also as imminent. We need a God who is both like us in some ways 
and who is very much wholly other, completely and totally different from us in other ways. God can't be too much like us because we know our own brokenness and evil. And if God were like us, then God would be malevolent. God would be simply to be feared instead of loved. But if God is not like us at all, then God is is sort of this alien presence, this robotic entity that can't empathize with us. So Genesis 1 and 2 offer these two different directions of how to understand God, and yet Genesis 1 and 2 are also deeply balanced and really get at the heart of who God is. So uh, as we move on from here, in this next week we'll be reading um, beginning in Genesis 3 and going through Genesis 8. And so um, we'll be stopping sort of midway through the flood narrative, and I think that perhaps next week uh, we may take the flood narrative as a whole. We'll see. Um, but uh, the idea, and this is the bookkeeping part of the podcast here, so uh, if, if you uh, want to turn it off, of course you're free to. But I think that the idea here is that we'll be um, publishing these podcasts every Monday, uh, trying to anyway, and um, uh, we'll, we'll be publishing them on Monday in order to respond to any questions that may come up from folks from the week before. You can access the Old Testament reading plan by going to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, slash 2021, capital O, capital T, capital P, lowercase l-a-n. That's bit.ly slash 2021 OT plan. I've also included it in the show notes, so you can access it there. If you have a question, uh, you can um, also access that in the show notes. I don't remember the URL offhand, uh, but it's also a bit.ly URL, and you'll be able to see that in the show notes. If you have any questions about Genesis 1 and 2, of course, you can still ask them. And if you have questions as you read, you can ask them too. One other thing to note, um, as I'm reading the Old Testament, I'm using a translation by a scholar named Robert Alter. Um, He uh, came out with a translation last year or a couple years ago of the entire Hebrew Bible. He's been working on it for maybe 20 years. It's his magnum opus. Um, And he's, he's I think, a Jewish fellow, has a Jewish background, and is a professor of Hebrew uh, at UC Berkeley. Um, he's got just a beautiful translation of the Old Testament. If you are uh, interested in using slightly different uh, translations, you can find some of his work, or I'd be happy to loan it to you. Um, Just reach out to me, and I'd be more than happy to do that. As we go on through the Old Testament, may God bless you in your reading of Scripture.